listeners, welcome to the 13th Floor Podcast. I am Cece. I'm Alex. I'm James. And today we're talking about lost treasures. Hmm. How are yes. you guys how are you guys doing today? Um, I'm doing well. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Same? Yeah. Nice weather. Nice weather. That's wonderful. What kind of temperature do y'all get up there finally? Um, it's I mean, it was cold today. It was like in the fifties, but it was sunny <sighs> and there's flowers and the grass is green, and so I'm not complaining. Oh. I like the way you think, James. Spring is in the air around here. Yeah. Yeah. That's why my nose is running. Yeah, his nose is runny. There's also, you know, it's like spring fever. Like everyone's like, ooh. There are two cats who have been getting intimate on our front porch lately. <laughs> they just keep coming around. <laughs> yeah. I want to say get a, another bush, but yeah. they just prefer the one right in front of yeah, my house. they just keep coming and coming. I was in the middle of a meeting, a work meeting the other day, and all of a sudden in the background there's this awful, <laughs> what's going on? Oh, so yeah, spring is here. Love is in the air, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what else is in the air? Um, our lessons. Oh. Uh, pollen. I was gonna say actually was not in the air, and that is the name of James's jumping spider. Oh, yeah. Is it de- determined already? It has been determined by our Patreon subscribers. Okay. So I want to thank you, all of our Patreon listeners uh, for doing this really hard thing for James because James became a daddy to a jumping Christ. spider. We had to name it and you guys have selected the name Lil Crip. Oh, so, what was the vote? Yeah, it was... Uh, it was a landslide? It, was a, it wasn't a landslide. It was really close. Uh, mm-hmm. There were three options. It was Paco, Taco, Skeeter, or Lil Crip. And for a very brief period, Skeeter and Lil Crip were tied. So I was like, oh, we can name him Lil Skeet. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> Why not, James? Why oh, do you think God, that's a good idea? Know, Alex. No, I know, oh, James. Oh, okay. It's a joke. Oh. How dare you? <laughs> How dare you? Anyways. Um, so, yeah, that's basically – that's just – that's what's going on at the 13th floor right now is that we've named a spider. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you want to be a patron and maybe name James's next pet. Yeah. Uh, get on over to our Patreon. Yeah. Our Patreon's on fire right now, you guys. I might, might get a next new pet uh, Saturday. <gasps> oh, really? Yeah. What kind of pet you getting? Probably another tarantula. That's all right. That's all right, yeah. James. You know what? You've got a type. That's yeah. 100% I might, okay. I might get my first old world. Thinking about it. What's an old world? Can you explain? Um, okay, sure. Yeah, there's two types of tarantulas, old world and new world. New worlds are from the Caribbean, South America, Central America, and North America. And they have urticating hairs like we've talked about in a previous episode and very mild mm-hmm. venom. Old worlds are from Africa, Asia, Australia, and arguably Europe because there's a few. It's debatable. Um, they do not have urticating hairs, but they have medically significant venom. So if they bite you, you're in trouble. James. Yeah. Think I'm ready. I am. You think? Well, you probably <laughs> are. I was going to ask you: Have you ever been bitten by a tarantula? I have not. I'm so glad, James. Mm-hmm. And that's just a, uh, that's just a sign that I think you're ready for an old world spider. There we go. Yep. So, you guys, maybe we'll have another poll when James adopts his next pet. <laughs> but yeah, our our Patreon's been on fire, and if you guys want to join, we've got three different tiers. We've got Ghosty, Ogopogo, and Choopy Tears, so you can select which team you want to be on. 
But yeah, if you want to learn more about our Patreon, 13thfloorpodcast.com, you can find a link there and hit us up. Ask us any questions you want. If you have any questions about our Patreon, you can also send them to me on the Instagram because mm-hmm. that's where I that's where I reign supreme. Mm. Um, but I think I think that's all I have right now. Do you guys have anything else you want to mention before we hop into our hearty hellos for around the world? No. no. Let's get into the hellos. Okay, our hellos. You guys, today we're going to, and I, I'm calling this segment Hardy Hellos. Oh, I've, cha- I've okay. named it. Um, Hardy Hellos around the world. We're going to say hello to everybody in Antigua and Barbuda, because oh. that's new on our list. Japan. Oh, well, hello, Japan. Hello. And then I, I selected the state in the United States That's earlier. You're not going to let me do it anymore. No, you're done with it. You've you've touched the ocean too many times. <laughs> Unforgivable. <laughs> We're saying hello to everybody in Pennsylvania. So hearty hello to all of you beautiful listeners out there. And I think it's time for the icebreaker. I actually have one. Oh, Dang. let's hear it. Yeah, you guys, I want to know today, what is your most sentimental treasure? Sentimental. Sentimental. Gwen. Gwen. Oh, such a cute answer. It's a cute answer. But I have to pick an object. You got to pick an object. It has to be something you would bury to keep safe, I guess. Yeah. Something that you would hide to protect because a lot of the the lost treasure stories that we talk about, they've hidden it and then it's been lost. Mm. How do you know? Have you heard mine yet? Yeah. No, I haven't. But Mm. I'm excited to hear it. Um... Probably like something to do with like photos or pictures. Photos or pictures? That's a good answer. Yeah. Yeah. Like the like wedding day or early Gwen. Early Gwen. That's th- Those are some good pictures. Mm-hmm. James, what about you? Uh, I got a watch as a graduation present from someone who is no longer with us. And it's one of the few things that I have that I'm sentimental about. The watch in my car. My car would just Aww. be really hard to bury. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> think that for me i've got two probably it's probably our our photos like family photos <laughs> and then we also had a painting commissioned and I've, i don't think i've mentioned this on the show but we actually had three miscarriages last year and we commissioned a painting of a butterfly to kind of commemorate you know everything that happened so i think that that would probably be one of the most sentimental items that i have <laughs> alongside the pictures so you guys that's my answer Mm. Mm. Good answers. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, do you guys want to Get hop onto the topic? Yeah. Who's going first? I think I'm going to go first. Okay. I'm going to, I'm just going to put my hand up. I'm going to go first. My hand's always up to go first. So, <laughs> liar. Okay. All right. So, lost treasures. All right, chickens. By the way, uh, me calling you guys chickens today has special significance <laughs> because I am talking about. The mystery of the Romanovs missing Fabergé eggs. Oh. Yeah. And especially since Easter is this weekend, I guess you could say, I've just got eggs on my mind. (laughs) So before I continue, my sources, I had townandcountrymag.com, nationalgeographic.com, fabergéland.com, CNN, and a visually torturous but immensely informative webpage on pbs.org. (laughs) <laughs> so visually torture. It was it looked like one of those <laughs> websites that was created when the internet first was brought oh. up. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it has like a, a background that has a pattern on it and then text over top of it. So it was hard to read, but I read it. Hmm. Okay. 
So um, before I happened upon the mystery of the missing Fabergé eggs, I really actually didn't know that much about Fabergé eggs. Uh, I had heard about them and I knew that they were fancy and expensive, but I didn't know where they came from. Do you guys know where they came from? Yeah, Fabergé uh, chickens. Yeah. Fabergé? No, it's, uh, the, I can't remember the guy's name, but the King Fabergé. King Fabergé. No, Fabergé eggs, they were a creation of a Russian jeweler named Peter Carl Fabergé. There we go. Peter Carl. And he was a master goldsmith, as that that was his like title. And his company was called the House of Fabergé, which sounds so opulent to me. Yeah, his yeah. hip-hop name was PC Fab. <laughs> <laughs> So in 1885, the Tsar of Russia, Alexander the Third, I think, he he was sitting in his palace just thinking to himself, well, Easter's almost here. Guess I've got to get my beautiful wife, Empress Maria Fyodorovna, a gift. But what should I get her? You know what I mean? He's thinking, mm-hmm. we're rich. We can have like literally anything we want. What do I get my wife when she can have literally anything? Are you going to act out your entire segment? No. So, <laughs> so Alexander calls up his boy, PC Fab, and tells him, I need something opulent, impressive, and surprising. And Peter Carl's like, don't worry, man, I got you. And he gets to work creating the world's very first Fabergé Easter egg. And I think it, the first one was called like the the golden hen or something, oh. but it it looked pretty simple on the outside. It was just like a white enamel egg, and it twisted open to reveal a golden yolk inside. And that's not all, you guys. Inside the yolk was a golden chicken, a golden hen, you know, if you will. And inside the chicken was a little mini diamond crown and a ruby pendant. And Empress Maria was so tickled and excited about it that it spurred this tradition of getting a new Fabergé egg every Easter. And so that's kind of how Fabergé eggs came to be. And Alexander III commissioned them for 30 years. And then his son, the famous Nicholas II, also carried on the tradition, giving one to his mommy dearest and then one to his own wife every Easter too. Mm -hmm. So over the years, the Romanovs kind of made eggs really trendy. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually, other families, like wealthy families in the Russian court, were commissioning the eggs too, like um, Prince Felix Yipsipov. I don't know. I don't know how to say that. The second, but he was actually the person who finally put an end to Rasputin. Oh, yeah. But anyways, in all, it's believed that there were about sixty-nine to seventy Fabergé eggs, uh, and only fifty-seven of them are accounted for today. 46 of them were imperial eggs, so they belonged to the royal family, and then 11 others were from other royal court families. Oh. Yeah. And you guys know what happened in Russia, right? With um, with Nicholas. Yeah. Something, something communism. Yeah, so something <laughs> happened. When the shiz started to hit the fan for the Romanovs, and Nicholas had to step down from power, the eggs were taken and stowed away at the Kremlin. And Peter called Fabergé... Uh, his house of Fabergé was also taken over and ransacked by the Bolsheviks. And he fled to Switzerland after the Romanovs were assassinated. And he ended up passing away just two years later. And many said it was from a broken heart because of all that he lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So these eggs, they sat inside the Kremlin for a really long time. And it's believed that the powers that be didn't even know that they really existed. Because there really wasn't much talk of Fabergé eggs in Russia outside of the royal court, apparently. Mm -hmm. 
And then when Stalin came into power and he needed more of those dollar dollar bills to support his communist regime, he found the eggs in storage in like 1927 and he was like, let's just get rid of them. We can just sell them. <laughs> so he sold them to collectors in the West and whoever got them, got them on super discount, you guys. <laughs> it said that Fabergé's son, who had been imprisoned after everything, they threw Good him job. in jail. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he was temporarily let out to go and appraise the eggs because they were like, how much are these worth? And he went and he was like, these are worth a lot of money, you guys. Like, they're worth a lot of money. But since nobody really understood what they were or the purpose and significance of them, the sentimental value of them, uh, Stalin had a lot of trouble selling them. So he just dropped the price down significantly just to get some of that cash. And curators at the Kremlin were apparently trying to hide the eggs to preserve Russian history because they like understood this is like a precious thing. <laughs> and Stalin was like, no, let's get rid of them. I don't care about them. And oh. an American businessman who also happened to be the friend of Lenin's bought 10 of them. His name was Armand Hammer. That's what a, a name. cool name. I know, yeah. right? So Hammer, he bought the eggs in the early 1930s, so like right off the Great Depression. So he had a lot of trouble selling them too. Um, nobody really seemed interested in them. They like looked at the egg and said, yeah, it's pretty, but who cares? So I wonder if it was easier for him to go to the USSR just because of his name. <laughs> we are Hammer? loving your names. Give regards to Mr. Sickle. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he came up with this idea. He really was kind of brilliant, but he thought to himself, I can't just sell these to people. So how about I get these things put into department stores and they can market them for me. And that's mm -hmm. actually what happened. It ended up working. So some of the eggs they sold for as little as four to $500, Ooh. which is insane because they're now valued in like the multi-millions. Yeah. And there are still eight to 10 that are unaccounted for. And people are like, oh, they might be out there. So it's like they're lost treasure, you guys. So someone's sitting on this thing that they probably think is like tacky and it's actually worth millions of dollars. Yeah, well, listen to this story, okay? In 2015, a man who remains anonymous, I don't blame him for this, but he found one for sale at like kind of like a scrap metal junk sale type deal, Jeez. and he paid 14k for it. And he at first he thought, "Oh, crap, I've overpaid for this" because he just planned on ripping it apart, melt it down, make something new and sell it for more. So he was planning on completely destroying this thing. And then he opens it up because all of the things, the thing with Fabergé eggs is that inside there's always a surprise. Mm. So it's not just like pretty on the outside. It's pretty on the outside and also pretty on the inside. And then usually pretty on the inside again. Very Russian. Mm. But he was planning on ripping it apart. And then he opens up the egg and there's a clock inside with this inscription that says Vacheron Constantine. So he's like... He's grasping at straws, trying to figure out how am I going to sell this thing for, you know, how am I going to make a profit here? So he Googles it and boom, it is the third Imperial Easter egg. Oh. Yeah. And he got it appraised. And why don't you guys guess how much it's worth? Oh, 13 man. million. 13 million. James, why don't you guess? Um, 32 million. James, you're so close. It's 33 million. Hey. Wow. Yeah. And he was just going to melt it down for gold. Isn't that insane? Wow. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Vacheron Constantine watches are obscene. But praise God this guy did his research because the third that's just the third one that the Imperial family made. Wow. So it was like one of the OGs, you know what I mean? But some of the 
Some of the most renowned people to own these eggs are Queen Elizabeth of England. She's got three. Must be nice. (laughs) Someone bought one and gifted it to Vladimir Putin at one point, and then he donated it to the St. Petersburg uh, Hermitage Museum. Hmm. Uh, Some are in private collections, and there are actually five at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts in Richmond, Virginia. So, Alex, we've got a place to visit. I want to go, like, I want to go see these eggs. (laughs) (laughs) But some of the eggs that are still lost today and that people are still looking for, they all have little special names. But the first one is called Hen with Sapphire Pendant. (laughs) Is that the first one? It's it's not the first one. The first one's oh. the golden hen. I, oh, okay. Yeah. Makes sense. The cherub with chariot. It's been missing since 1941. So it's, it was still around and then somebody just lost it. Uh, <laughs> Necessaire, missing since 1952. Um, and it's just absolutely studded in precious gems. Hmm. There's another egg called moth. And it had pictures of the Tsar, his wife, and their first child, and the pictures on the egg have been accounted for, but the actual egg itself is still MIA. Then there's the Empire Nephrite, the Royal Danish, and then Alexander the Third commemorative egg. And the only reason we actually know that this one even exists is because a picture of it surfaced, but the picture was taken before the Russian Revolution, so goodness knows where it's at now. No one's seen it since forever ago. And you guys, there are supposedly more, but... That was uh, that was the list of the the missing ones that I could find, and this is just a little personal story. But my mom's mom had a Fabergé style egg when I was little, and I thought it was just the tackiest thing in the world. It's just like so ugly, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. And I was like, why would anyone want one of these things? And and now I'm just like, what if it was one of the Fabergé eggs, and I didn't even know it? That'd be wild. It wasn't, but. My uncle, at one point, one of my uncles tried to make me some Fabergé eggs. And they were just, you know, they were just little eggs. But I was like, what if that was a clue? What if he was telling me, (laughs) you have a Fabergé egg? (laughs) So, yeah, after doing this research, you guys, I'm just really excited to, like, get my hands on a Fabergé egg now. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I I would bank on that. (laughs) So, you guys... That is the story of the missing Fabergé eggs. Who's going next? Yeah, you go ahead and go, James. Oh, wow. Oh. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, it seems every time I talk about something historical, I always think, like, wow, this needs to be made into a, a film. And uh, I'm going to be talking about the Three Brothers, which is a really interesting piece of jewelry. But before I talk about that, I'm going to give a little backstory about what I think would make a good movie. And that is the story of John the Fearless. So John the Fearless was the Duke of Burgundy. And he was actually an heir to the the throne of the French royal family. But uh, he had a lot of trouble with his family. (laughs) So... um, yeah, his his cousin was King Charles the Sixth, who was in charge of, as you can imagine by the fact that his title is King of France, and he was mentally ill, so not really fit to rule. And John the Fearless was always sort of up against him in many respects. Um, so what ultimately happened uh, is his son, Charles the Sixth, son Charles the Seventh, who was heir to the throne kept attempting to kill him 
So, yeah, because he saw him as a a rival. You know, it's literally his dad's a lunatic and and this John, the fearless guy, is much more adept at actually ruling things. Um, A lot of people think he would have made a much better king, and I tend to agree. Unfortunately, that didn't work out because uh, eventually those assassination plots did succeed. So that's a real shame. And it's also cool that his dad's name uh, was Philip the the Bold. So it's kind of... Kind of neat that you got a bold and a fearless in succession like that. But uh, he commissioned a really, really interesting piece of jewelry called the Three Brothers. And it's three rectangular red spinels, which they called ballas. Ballas. Ballas rubies uh, back then. So, and I can kind of see it. It's like a a pinker, more and more of a salmon color of a root, similar to a ruby, but much lighter in color. So, it's three of those spinels centered around a uh, big, big, beautiful blue diamond. 30 carat blue diamond. Massive blue diamond. Um, I want that. Yeah. And it's, well, you know, it's funny though. It's actually quite ugly because the the technology for cutting gems wasn't quite there yet. So they're, they're very raw looking. Like if you saw this, you know, again, maybe that's why it's never been discovered again, uh, refound is if you saw this at a flea market, you'd probably think, oh, that's gaudy and probably <laughs> worth 20 bucks. You know, <laughs> I've got to look it up. Yeah. Um, 70 carats of uh, are the red spinels, each big flipping red spinels. And they are all separated from the blue diamond by three round 10 carat pearls. And then at the very, very bottom is another pearl. So you were right. This thing is ugly. Yeah, exactly. It looks <laughs> it looks like something you would see. And no offense to any art teachers out there, but it looks like something you'd see an art teacher wear around her neck. You know what I mean? Everybody knows <laughs> the, the, the type. The you know, it's not a very pretty thing. But the point to this is that John the Fearless was constantly allying himself because of his insane French family with England during the Hundred Years' War. So, and, and there's a huge, huge connection that I'm not even going to get into because it takes so long between England, France, and Burgundy, the region itself. But um, ultimately, after he commissioned it, um, it was the Burgundian crown jewels for a century. Well, close. And uh, then it ended up in Jacob Fugger's, that's his name, Fugger, oh. uh, German banker Jacob Fugger's possession. So, what ends up happening is they're sold to Edward VI, and they become the crown jewels of England. So first they were the crown jewels of Burgundy for like a century. Well, they ended up being the crown jewels of England for a very short span of time, really. Uh, you know, less than a century in this instance. But Queen Elizabeth I wore them, King James VI and I wore them, which we've talked about that. You know, remember the little joke that they named him twice? Um, <laughs> Henrietta Maria, who was Charles I's wife. This is, this is where things get interesting because we don't think about royal families having hard times, but Alex and I, we actually took a class about uh, the Carolingian era and how, you know, Oliver Cromwell seized power <laughs> and Charles I was beheaded. Well, yeah. during- James, yeah. you, you said that and Alex looked at me like, did I take this class? <laughs> <laughs> you did. You did, Alex. Oh, man. Remember? I, I, I did. I uh, remember all of it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, um, whenever the, 
the English Civil War broke out, the the royal family was almost bankrupted by this. I mean, think about it. It was a civil war. Half the country was fighting the other half of the country. Cromwell and his roundheads were fighting Charles and his cavaliers to a huge economic detriment of the country. And his wife, Charles I's wife, Henrietta Maria, actually tried to sell them. And we don't actually know if that worked out. But after the end of the Civil War and King Charles I's beheading, um, the jewels disappeared. And assuming she didn't succeed in selling it, I can just imagine Cromwell, who was a weird fella, uh, just seeing them and thinking, like, this is vanity. We have no need for such things. And just, like, chucking them in a gutter or something. And then some, like, pauper finding it and just dancing, you know? Um, <laughs> so it's been missing for a long time is is the thing to take home here. It's been missing since 1645. And what's what's interesting to me, this is just a theory, theory, but... To reiterate, they're ugly jewels. They are ugly jewels. So yes. I think a very real possibility. Uh, there's a there's a history of of art thieves, jewelry thieves, treasure hunters, etc., finding things like this. And one of two things happens: either they keep it in a private collection, like like a supervillain, and that's unironically what's happened to a lot of 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 missing treasures. I guarantee it. They're in private collections, and they're not ever reported. And, you know, usually the people who have them are, are some nefarious people, you know, human traffickers and drug dealers and whatnot. Um, not always, but, you know, it's not something you want the IRS or whatever your country's equivalent is to know about. So private mm-hmm. collections. The other possibility is when somebody who doesn't recognize the inherent value of it, and this has happened many times too throughout history, is they just sell the jewels off. Well, with how flipping ugly, but how massive in carrots these jewels are, I can just imagine somebody who does know a thing or two about it making some much prettier cuts and selling those off. That's what I think is yeah. more likely to have happened, which is a little sad because it means the three brothers aren't three brothers anymore. They're probably about a, a dozen much prettier but less historically significant uh, gemstones. Huh. That's yeah. my theory, though. does not actually mean that that's 100% what happened. That's that's me well, that making seems, some speculations. Based at like based upon my Fabergé egg story, where the guy bought it for fourteen k because the person who had it had no idea how much it was worth, right. and he was going to melt it down, but he did his research before. I could totally mm-hmm. see that have ha- having yeah. happened to yours too. Yeah, well, except the person didn't do their research. Right. Well, funny enough, uh, Charles the Bold. Um, you know, we we mentioned him earlier in the story. He actually lost another. There's another lost treasure from him, and it's the Florentine diamond. Massive, uh, well, not not crazy big. What? Okay, yeah, crazy big. Hundred. I was misreading it. It's. I thought it was 13 carats. It's 137 carats. Um, <laughs> That's a bit big. It is a green diamond and a very unusual. I mean, you you've seen yellow diamonds. This is an oval shaped, absolutely unique. I would say lime-colored diamond. I mean, oh, it almost looks it. like a diamond. Yeah. A lime. It, looks it looks like, like a lemon. lemon. Yeah, a little bit. So very, very unique stone, and it's also, of course, missing. So I just thought that was kind of interesting that the, the Burgundians can't catch a break. No. So, but, uh, Man, yeah. I want to find that. <laughs> well, that covers it for me. Man. Alex, what are you talking about? I'm talking about, you know, 
So for Lost Treasure, I decided to tackle an oldie but a goodie. An oldie but a goodie. Yeah, in terms of fiction at least. Nazi gold. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah the root of a lot of fiction. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so who doesn't love a good Nazi treasure hunt? I sure do. I probably would, right? Yeah. <laughs> now, this Nazi treasure hunt takes place in the Lake Toplitz in Austria. Okay. Yeah, and the story goes is that they were having to distribute this gold throughout various places to hide it so that if something happened, they would have a place to go dip back into to... Have their monies. Yeah, yeah. So, in case they needed to turn the tides. Okay. Now, when they realized they were going to lose, the Nazis decided to just hide it all, bury it. And then, you know, later they'll come back and collect. Now, the hunt... This hunt for the Nazi gold in Lake Toplitz has led to the death of seven people. That's sad. Yeah. One of which is a member of the U.S. Navy who was diving and got tangled up in the logs in the lake. Oh, my gosh. So, that's right. This lake is apparently pretty dangerous because it's littered with logs on the bottom. What's the name of the lake? Lake Toplitz. T-O-P-L-I-T-Z. Going to Expedia right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so... Yeah, the, the logs make it really difficult just to even find anything. They litter all er, the the entire floor. So, mm. you know, usually these stories, nothing is ever found of value, right? And, well, it's kind of true here, too. Um, <laughs> in, in, a, in a way, I guess. So, in 1959, a team found 72 million pounds. Sorry. Of what? Sorry. 72 million pounds in... Forged currency. <laughs> uh, I was about to say, I was like, that's more than I think we could expect to find yeah. in a lake. Yeah. <laughs> so it turns out that they found this with a printing press, which is actually really cool because this is actually part of, this was actually part of uh, Hitler's secret operation called Operation Bernhard. And this was part of his plan to destroy the British economy through inflation right. with forged currency. That happens wow. today. North Korea does that to us. Oh my gosh. Which, yeah, it, it's really smart. <laughs> this is a really yeah. good plan. Um, then another diver uh, died in 1963. But the interesting thing is he was actually led to the location illegally by an SS officer. Whoa. Yes. Suspicious <laughs> what if the real me. Nazi treasure was the Nazi friends we made along the way? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And there's a few other mysterious incidents at this uh, lake. So in 1950, a German engineer went, uh, he went to go do some climbing and he got a guide and his guide died during a climbing accident. Mm. Now, when they investigated they discovered that the that the man Keller, who was the one that hired the guide, actually worked during the war at a testing station in Toplitz. So he knew the area. So he knew the area. Interesting. And, mm-hmm, and in 1952, a French geography teacher was found close to the shore of the lake, dead, but it looked like that he had been digging at the ground. Okay, uh, so he was... But he was just like digging on like the normal. He wasn't in the lake. <laughs> he wasn't in the lake. I'm okay. sorry. I'm not laughing at that. It's just like I imagine. Like, what if turns out it's actually Hitler all along? Like he just pops up with his with his little mouth and he's like, "Don't touch my stuff." 
<laughs> yeah. But yeah, apparently he'd been camping there and they said that there were signs of digging, but it didn't look like anything had been found by him. Hmm. Now, while investigating the, his death, the police found two other bodies on the opposite shore Lord. had been shot in the back of the head. Hmm. And neither of them were able to be identified. Somebody, I bet you these people were getting close to finding something, and then somebody was like, "I'm more inclined to think mm-hmm. they did." This is like uncharted, but IRL. This is crazy. I don't like it. <laughs> yeah. So um, the operation that actually found the forgeries and the uh, the printing press, they actually also found some other documents. Some documents pertaining to the Reich Main Security Office, hmm. actually specifically for Heinrich Himmler, who, Himmler of Heinrich Himmler, who is actually who was responsible for the printing press and the banknotes. So not not surprising, but he's also the one that almost all the stories center around in regards to the lost Nazi gold. Mm-hmm. Okay, because there's a lot of stories about Nazi gold. Not just this one. Um, oh, man. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's really, it, it's all, <laughs> it's a lot. There's there's a few more people that have died around the area or in actually searching for the gold. But I, me- I mentioned earlier the SSS officer who guided the guy who died. Mm-hmm. The government banned for 20 years anyone from going into this lake. And diving illegally. They were like, "This, listen, this is the last time. Yeah, this is getting out of a hand. It's a tourist attraction at this mm. point. People are dying. We can't have this happening. Yeah. I'm sure lots of people did. Actually, I know lots of people did because they keep doing it now, even though it's illegal. Apparently, they arrest 10 divers a year still <laughs> <laughs> trying to go into this lake. So, in 1983, some divers, they actually got some good funding. And they went back and they found forged British pounds, some more counterfeit currency they found nazi era rockets and, and missiles and they even found parts of aircraft yeah man at, at the bottom of the lake and they also bonus found an unknown species of worm <laughs> hey. so yeah a little bonus for them but apparently they claimed that they only took a little bit of a sample they were able to penetrate the logs and find some of these extra things at the mm. bottom do you think that maybe like the Nazis threw the logs into the lake to cover it's up possible everything? I mean they had the resources to cut a bunch of trees down and throw them on top mm. yeah they're like we'll just come back and move the logs well it's a lake later. It's like I think it's somewhere like in the ballpark of like a thousand acres yeah it's which huge. is crazy like holy moly that's a lot of logs. <laughs> yeah. And then during a three-week expedition that was done using an underwater capsule, they finally found something big. They lifted out this big box, opened it up, and it was a bunch of beer can lids with a <laughs> note attached saying, sorry, not this time. Oh, my God. <laughs> what? That's cold. Yeah, yeah. So someone probably saw these people out there for like an extended period of time and dropped this out there laughing so hard. Oh, man. Another odd thing is that less than three miles away from the lake, at Lake Altossier, someone found this metal. And the metal actually belonged to Ernst Kaltenbrunner, who was like a high-ranking SSS member. And he had been, again, associated with the Nazi treasure. Now, Kaltenbrunner was killed in 1946. But finding his seal so close to Lake Toplitz is like really jacked up 
the interest in the area. I was about to say, like, hey. that's, that's a bit odd. Yeah. It sounds like it, they just it, hid everything there and nowhere else. Yeah, it really does. And during uh, a professor by the name of Hans Frick, um, during his expedition in 85, his cameras actually picked up what appeared to be the entrance of an underwater bunker. <gasps> but oh. it was never explored because apparently the, it had been collapsed and you can't get into it. And, oh my yeah, yeah, I don't and, buy and then, that one bit. And then, well, in the yeah. <laughs> in the '90s, the remains of an un, of an above ground bunker was actually found, but it was two it was two hundred feet from the lake shore. Now, again, this interior tunnel was collapsed, and it seems like it had been destroyed deliberately, but no one's <sighs> gone in. To, Why haven't they gotten like? Surely we have the technology today to oh, yeah. dig yeah, down. Hands down. We went to flipping drone images of the Titanic. Yes. Uh, well, here's here's the deal. My guess, from what I was able to look at and research, people have most certainly gone in and picked over everything. The government is probably actually Austrian government has probably gotten in, or some government has probably gotten in <laughs> and gotten their money. Could and be. that's my guess is there's been a lot of people probably unofficially, officially <laughs> digging for this thing. Crazy yeah. theory. There's an, there's that a, episode we did where I talk about yeah. New Swabia. The proof yeah. is there that it's real and they don't want us <laughs> to know. <laughs> but there, the, 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 thing, yeah, the interesting thing about here is that there's a lot here and there's a lot probably to be found, even though I would imagine the gold, if it actually exists and the money. Probably God. <laughs> oh man, that's that's a crazy story, babe. Yeah, these have been fun lost treasures. Yeah, this has been fun. I want to thank Paula for submitting this topic because this one was a really fun one to look into, and I had a lot of trouble like figuring out what specific lost treasure I wanted to talk about. So mm. I know mm. that there are lost treasure episodes in the future. Definitely. <laughs> Alex, you said you were going to talk about a pirate treasure. What happened to your pirate treasure? Uh, I found Nazi treasure, which is better than pirate treasure. Okay, all right. Fair <laughs> point, fair point. Um, is there anything that you guys want to mention before we draw from the base? Uh, I think we're good to go. Yeah. All right. Let's do it. Let me get the base. Here, take it, baby. One second. All right. Here's your slip. All right, baby. So next week, we are actually talking about the Vatican books and this topic was submitted by one of our listeners, Dee Dee. And Dee Dee, I don't know what you've been doing. She reached out to me recently on Instagram and said, when are you going to get to one of my topics? <laughs> and so um, I said I would put some positive vibes out. And apparently they've worked because next week we are talking about the Vatican books. Awesome. Hey. So congratulations, Dee Dee. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't know anything about no, the Vatican me, books. No, me neither. What are the Vatican books? This is oh, going to take what? some research. Well, I don't know oh, man, what the Vatican books are. You guys are for some fun. Well, James, what is it? We just oh. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, uh, the, the, the Vatican has an extensive library that very few people are permitted entry into, which has led to a lot of theories as to what's there. Some uh. some very realistic and some rather outlandish. Okay. Well, cool. Ooh, okay. All right. Cool. Will, cool. They, will they explain their Christmas statue? <laughs> oh man, maybe, maybe, maybe the statues are actually golems, and that's where they live. Oh, oh my! Okay, well, I can't wait to look into the Vatican books. 
Uh, you guys, I think that's it. Alex, who does our music? Our music is by Grant Cook. You can find his music on Spotify, Amazon Music, iTunes, anywhere you listen to music. <sighs> so until next time, you guys, we hope that you can keep, keep it, it straight. straight.